Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, let me welcome you here to um, the London School of Economics and LISI, the research unit on Southeast Europe, for today's debates on EU enlargement in the Western Balkans, a fast-track or slow, slow lane approach. My name is James Kerlinzi, and I'm a senior research fellow in LISI. It gives me great pleasure to welcome our two speakers this afternoon, um, the first of whom is Dr. Ingeborg Gressler on my right. Um, she's an MEP representing Germany and a member of the Bureau of the European People's Party. She has a background in journalism, starting out as a training editor and then editor of the Augsburger Allgemeine Zeitung. She also conducted publicity work for the CDU Federal Headquarters and was spokeswoman for the town of Rüsselheim. Since then, she has been a member of the Baden-Württemberg Regional Assembly and a member of the Heidenheim District Council. She's been an MEP since 2004. Within the European Parliament, she is a member of the Committee on Budgets, the Committee on Budgetary Control, and a member of the Delegation for Relations with the Palestinian Legislative Council. To my left is Tanya Fion, um, who is an MEP from Slovenia and a member of the group of Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats in the European Parliament. Um, like Dr. Gressler, she too was also a journalist before becoming an MEP, um, working as a journalist and assistant editor, working for Radio Glas Ljubljane, Republika Daily Newspaper, and RTV Slovenia. From 2001 to 2009, she served as the EU correspondent in Brussels for RTV Slovenia, the public broadcaster. Within the Parliament, she is Vice Chair of the Delegation to the EU-Croatia Joint Parliamentary Committee and a member of the Committee on Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs. Thank you very much, Dr. Gressler. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's an honour to speak to you and to discuss with you. <coughs> As you know, the English is the most massacred language in the world, <clears throat> and I will do my very best this afternoon to massacre not too much. <laughs> but I'm, my first language was French, therefore <clears throat> I'm, um, as a member of the Budget Control Committee, I belong to the cleaning up team invited after the party. Uh, and the last party we had was the accession procedure for Romania and Bulgaria, and we are still still uh, very occupied in seeing that uh, these two member states have not did, uh, did in principle not fulfill the criteria to be a real member of the European Union. What does it mean at being member of the European Union? It means that in this community of law and the European Union is a community of law the member states and the future member states are able to apply and to cope with this European law. And so what we see is that when you don't have an administration which works and which works with, without corruption, if you don't have a judicial system which works and which works without corruption, it is very difficult to comply to the European Union. It's very difficult to manage the funds as you should manage them. And we see with Bulgaria mainly the problems also for these member states and also the, the, the loss of reputation when you have problems in applying uh, the European rules. Um, therefore, I would like to, to, uh, to advise us to take the, the slow lane approach for the Western Balkan states. We see that there are still plenty of problems, that the pre-accession procedures we had up to now are still 
with, with plenty of problems. We have no judicial system functioning. We have an administrative system which works only partly, and we have, of course, um, in, in, we have, of course, war minority post-war phases, and we have minority problems. And therefore, I think we should be also from the experiences we had with Romania and Bulgaria, we should be very careful. But it's our obligation to help these countries and to help these countries even better. And therefore, I always put the Commission in Brussels under pressure to make real, to, to allow these countries to have real progress in helping them to cope with the European rules and also cope with what we call precondition for, for the accession procedure. Um, you, you know that all prospective members must um, uh, enact legislation to bring their laws into line with the body of European law built up in the history of, uh, European law of, of the European Union, the acquis communautaire. And this is, a, this is a very big duty for these, uh, for these states. And therefore, we have to help them in giving them better advice and also giving them uh, better instruments to cope uh, with these obligations. We have for the Western Balkans the Thessaloniki agenda, and we do not, not know really where we are standing. There has been no report on what is going on with the Thessaloniki agenda, how it is implemented, and what is still lacking. And therefore, I put in an amendment in the discharge 2008, voted next week, where I wanted to know where we are standing for the, uh, for the in the Thessaloniki agenda and the, the procedure. I see also a lot of problems with Croatia, <clears throat> the backlog in the justice, and uh, therefore I would advise ourselves to be constructive, but to be very prudential in having these members and uh, having these uh, the Western Balkan states in the European Union. The big question will be what's happening with Turkey, and uh, for the moment, nobody is really interested in uh, in uh, in in having decisions and having urgent decisions on Turkey, but this question is, um, is planning over the Western Balkan states and therefore I don't think that there will be a decision on Western Balkan states without also a decision on Turkey. My big sorrow is, as the heads of state will deal with this question, the moment when they decide on Croatia, they will also decide on Turkey, they will decide on Firem, they, they will also decide on the rest of the Western Balkan states. And for our population, <coughs> you know that um, in the old member states, a lot of people are against, more people are against uh, accession of, of these countries. In the new member states, even more people are against than in the old ones. For us, as European politicians, it will be very difficult and very hard to explain to our population why we are taking these countries on board. In Germany, in my constituency, the mood of the, popula of the population is very clear. <coughs> they do not want uh, to um, have further accessions. This we have also to, uh, to take in mind, and it's also, of course, a financial question uh, for the next financial period from 2014 on, where nothing is foreseen yet, how many uh, money is foreseen uh, for the accession um, of, of the Western Balkan states and also for Turkey. For the moment, not even Croatia's accession is financed. Nothing is financed. And therefore, these are questions we should discuss before and not after. I would like you to remind that accession to European Union is not a beauty contest. 
it is a question of having fulfilling the conditions and i'm very worried to see that up to now we did not really sufficient we did not take sufficiently serious the copenhagen criteria and also the thessaloniki agenda therefore i would like us to invite us to work on these issues to have a pro the necessary progress that the upcoming member states will be able to fulfill their obligations towards the european union thank you very much thank you <coughs> Thank you very much. Um, welcome to everyone. I am very glad that I have the opportunity to be today in School of Economics and Political Science here. It's my first time. I'm coming from Slovenia, from Ljubljana, and I've been a member of the European Parliament only since um, half a year. And I would like to maybe start my um, presentation or speech here with uh, my memories from 1991 when I've been in Slovenia and I've been um, as well living close to the border and when the war started we've been listening to fights and fires and shooting and we've been often hiding to the shelters and we've been young generation when it was difficult to understand what's going on with the ex-Yugoslavia at that time when um, we had families and friends not far away living, maybe just across the borders, few hundred kilometers away at that time was one country. And I have to say when the war started in Slovenia was only 10 days. It was very short one and not very painful one. But the big tragedy, tragedy started much later, started later in the neighboring countries. And for example, my friends and families in um, other parts of Yugoslavia, somehow we lost the contacts and it was again difficult to understand what's going on those people who used to live together and we had very strong relationships suddenly became enemies and after all these wars which really i would say changed the region dramatically somehow today started developing and had and have another new European perspective. I think it's very important to know that the European perspective for the countries of the Western Balkan is extremely important. Slovenia became a member of the European Union in 2004. It was at that time one of the most successful candidate country and member country in European Union among the 10 new member states. And I am, I would say that um, Europe needs Western Balkan the same as Western Balkan needs European Union. It's a two-way um, system, two-way game, I would say. And therefore, I am in European Parliament very active as a rapporteur as well on visa liberalization for the countries of the Western Balkan to bring these countries as soon as possible closer to the European Union. I think it's very important, especially because the enlargement process as a such is a powerful instrument to keep reform process on track in these countries, also to the benefit of European Union. And while I'm talking about, for example, now visa liberalization, I'm pretty sure you are very well aware where these country, countries in the Western Balkans stands today. The first one which will join the European Union is Croatia. And 
the Croatia really now believes and wants to finish the con con negotiations till the end of this year. I don't know how much you were following latest border dispute between Slovenia and Croatia. Um, Slovenia on one hand is a member of European Union, but we had certain unsolved um, bilateral issues, including the border issue, which we now found a solution, the agreement between the two countries. And Croatia is really very fast advancing to the European <coughs> Union. And in Slovenia, I say we really, really want that Croatia would, as soon as possible, become a member state of the European Union, because we'll be as well for the benefit of people, as well for the benefit of economic and political cooperation for both countries. Therefore, as well, it's um, our main priority to help, to concretely help all the countries of the Western Balkans to advance as fast as possible towards the European integration. Now, visa liberalization process, as I am very much involved in the process as such, I would like to present you a little bit why I believe it's very important. Those countries, maybe 20 years ago, they didn't, citizens of those countries, didn't need visas to travel to Europe. And uh, to freely travel, it's basically a basic right of citizens. And in uh, Serbia, Macedonia, and Montenegro last year, they successfully fulfilled all the criteria. Therefore, European Union decided in November last year to abolish visas for the citizens. I often say to my colleagues when the European Parliament, we were really strongly endorsing visa abolishment for the citizens of these countries, that it's difficult to understand when you come from the country which is a few hundred kilometers away, for example, from um, Serbia or Montenegro, that especially the young people, students, cannot travel outside of their countries and often they know maybe Europe as America from internet or from the television and then it's difficult to talk or understand the European perspective if you don't have this basic right of freedom and this region needs it even more than ever because of the history they were facing and all these um, tragedies they were facing in the region. So we managed to achieve, and I am very proud that I've been as well part of it, visa liberalization for Serbia, Montenegro, and um, uh, Macedonia last November because people started not really traveling now from day one, but they started feeling the freedom finally again. And now we are in the process to finish this um, visa liberalization this year for Bosnia and Herzegovina and Albania. And I really hope we will be able to bring this process to the end for all of the citizens of the Western Balkans, because it's an important step towards the European integration. For example, if you look Bosnia and Herzegovina, it's a very um, specific country, I would say, and a politically still very unstable country. All the reforms they have to produce are especially in the benefit of its citizens. And in Bosnia and Herzegovina, you have extremely difficult political situation. But when it came to this clear target, for example, the abolishment of visas, all different political um, structures in the country coming from, there are two entities, federal Bosnia and Herzegovina and Republika Srpska, they were able 
to put all the power together and work for this common target that was for the citizens to freely travel to European Union. So they had clear vision what they want to achieve and they were able to work for that. And I really believe that when they have a clear European perspective, they will work for the benefits of their citizens and they will make the reforms and they will bring countries closer to European values which we respect and we have to promote them in the countries. For example, in Serbia, Serbia is really um, as well making quite a progress. If you look just in the last year, um, cooperation with the ICTY, with the Hague Tribunal, even though Ratko Mladic, uh, the general, is still at large, um, Serbia proved um, much better cooperation with ICTY. The government changed, it's a pro-European government. So all these, um, I would say, tools, um, the enlargement processes as such, is basically bringing stability in our region. That's why I think we really believe, uh, that's why I think we really have to endorse the enlargement as a such. And of course, we will always judge on the benefits, on the merits of um, what the country is really fulfilling. It's not that we talk about fast or slow track as you have a title. I believe the time is very relevant. For some countries, five years can be very short, for some can be very long. But the most important is that they have a perspective and clear perspective with that, we, that the European Union as well remains credible and keeps the door open because it's very important that these countries will move on the path towards European integration. So um, I think if I go back to visa liberalization, that um, if this year we make this final step for Bosnia and Herzegovina and Albania, I hope we will soon find as well a solution for all the citizens living in Kosovo. Because as you know, Kosovo is a very special issue as well and um, it should not remain a black hole on the map of the Western Balkan. So we have to find a solution. And what I would like as well maybe to emphasize, um, this week on Saturday, we are planning in Slovenia to organize a mini Balkan summit conference. It will be the first time if it happens after 17 years that all the leaders from the Western Balkan will be sitting at the same table, including uh, with the um, president of the European Union, Mr. Van Rompuy, with the enlargement commissioner Fille, and with the Spanish foreign minister um, Zapatero. So, um, excuse me, Moratinos. Um, I really hope that this, it's still a little bit of dilemma whether Serbian um, leaders will come because you know that there is an open issue that the Serbia doesn't want to sit at the same table with Kosovo leaders. But um, the conference will take place. Slovenia and Croatia, it was a common initiative which tells as well a lot after a year of misunderstanding or tensions between the countries that they came out with a common initiative to help the region to really work together for the same benefit, to have a political economic stability in the region, which is in the benefit of the European Union as a such. So I think that the, the conference, if it takes place um, this Saturday in Slovenia, it will be an important step 
um, and if all the leaders will be really at the same table with names and family names, maybe not with the official titles which country they present, it will um, give a very clear message as well that the region is really able uh, to cooperate as well regional cooperation is extremely important. So I would say let's not talk about whether we want to have fast track or slow lane for the enlargement but just to bring those countries which are ready as sooner as possible to European Union to help them and not close door towards them and to really make some concrete proposals, maybe be a little bit more, I would say, creative in the approach to the Western Balkan because it's really necessary to understand the history as well. So um, I hope we will manage this year to bring at least with this final, with this small step in visa liberalization, these two countries which are still um, few steps behind the other three in the region. And then there is still maybe another five to ten years to wait that um, countries will maybe one day become member of the European Union. But I think as long as they are not in the European Union, <coughs> we always risk certain instability in the region. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Um, we now have about um, 40 minutes for questions and answers. Could I ask that anyone who wants to ask the question to clearly identify themselves? Um, we're also producing a podcast of this um, meeting, so could I ask you please to speak up as loudly as possible so that we can actually hear the questions on, on the later cast? Um, so anyway, the floor is now open if anyone's got any questions, comments. Lady there. Um, my name is If I may, may add, you remember in 2004 when we had the biggest enlargement ever, 10 countries and three years after um, two other, there were lots of fears of big immigration flow to European Union and lots of stories about Polish plumbers and so. And I know that in Great Britain that was as well quite a, a big fear, but I think all the data later proved that 
it was not as it was expected that not so many people really immigrated their countries. Um, especially, I would say, not from the smaller member states like Slovenia, for example. Um, and that it's, as you said, it's as well on our side in the European Union how to control it. Um, for example, recently, which was interesting for me to observe, was that um, when we were talking about visa liberalization in January and February, there were lots of people coming to Belgium from uh, Macedonia and Serbia to ask for asylum when they got visa-free regime. And uh, they were misled because they thought there were some agencies in uh, Serbia and Montenegro offering them very um, cheap trip to Brussels or to consulates or to Germany. Um, and they said to them that they can ask for political or economic asylum there. That was two months, but now the latest data said that this stopped. Basically, it's always like that. I think it's some adoption period when some people, of course, will try to explore new ways and will go to travel, but it's never in reality that we should be afraid of newcomers. I think it's really good that you have this flow of people, and especially, I think, for young people, it's very important that they can go around and they bring experiences and then that at home we are able to attract them back as well. So it's responsibility on both sides. I'm, I'm not, I'm against doing politics on the principal hope. I understand what you said on peace and on the effects of having a real perspective. But you know, for us, what, what, I'm, what I'm missing is that the countries, and former Yugoslavia, it's now seven states, seven independent states having visa of their own, having borders, having money of their own. Why, do they, why don't they cooperate more? Why don't they really build up a regional cooperation which merits the name regional cooperation? You know, what I'm wondering is that these countries hope that they can solve their problems in the European Union. You know, I'm working there and I know what the European Union can solve, can do and what, what they cannot do. And they, we are unable to solve these internal problems. It's just too much for us. And this is my big fear that in, uh, in putting too much on, on the shoulders of the European Union, it will not work. And you know, it is not a beauty contest. And are these countries really able to deal with the European law because in the internal market, because this is a little bit the sense of the European Union. And this, it is also stability by economic welfare. But therefore, you have to look for the basis in your state, in your country, that, that it can work. No, I'm not a foreign politician, and I could never be a foreign politician. But you know, I see, but I see the problems, and therefore I would really, I would really ask everybody to put down the rosa glasses, to look to look at the problems. Because if we continue like that, we will not be able to deal with these huge problems we are facing there. Kosovo, Kosovo, is the youngest population in Europe. We could be happy about that, but there is an unemployment rate for more, for more than 40 percent. Although imagine when you solve the visa problem, what will happen? And I can tell you that we will have to face these problems, not in Great Britain, but mainly in Germany. 
And of course, we had we had several waves of refugees there, several waves of immigration there. And of course, there was also an immigration wave after 2004. It was less than everybody said. This is true, but there was a there was a wave. And I, I know Great Britain, Great Britain and Ireland were the only, and Sweden, I think, were the only three countries in the European Union who allowed the new member states' workers to work in their countries. And I think they have uh, some different views on that. I'm, I'm a, if, let's do things, but the, the majority of our population can approve. And I have some doubts on if they approve it. Uh, I have I, I voted also for the um, for the visas for the fall of the visa obligation for the for the Balkan states, but please let's be careful and let's try to examine what we are doing, and let's try to do the right things. You know, the German taxpayer gives to the European Union eight billion euros a year net, where we don't get a return. The British taxpayer gives to the European Union 870 millions. We give 8 billions, the British give 8 millions. You know, I, really, let's be careful. I don't want to have the British's cousin also in my home country, even though there's some more reason to discuss. We have to, to take our population with us, and I'm not sure if we will ever succeed with a, a further accession procedure. I'm, I'm not a foolish fool. I know that there will be an accession procedure, but when? This is the question. And how? And, and, and in which? In what will be the the state of play in these countries? Will they really be able to deal with the European Union? Because what I see when I pick up the example of Greece, when I pick up the example of Southern Italy, we have now even member states who are not able to apply the European law: Bulgaria, Romania. We have huge deficiencies there. We can continue like that, but what, what, would he get, what do we get then? We will get a dysfunctioning European Union, and then we lost everything. Thank you. Um, Joanna. Joanna Hanson, Research Analyst from the Commonwealth Office. Mrs. Van, you spoke about the European Union having a clear perspective for these countries. Um, holding the door open, but you also at the very end said that the European Union could perhaps be a bit more creative and had to bear in mind the specific history of this country. Can you perhaps say a bit more about how you think the European Union could be more creative? <coughs> I had in mind Thank you for the question. I had in mind especially Bosnia and Herzegovina because we are recently dealing a lot with the country having a um, very difficult political situation, as well Albania, both of them. But um, for example, now it's 15 years since Dayton Agreement and Bosnia and Herzegovina still is under international um, its protectorate. And uh, we have to find now ways how the country will be really able to function on its own with constitutional changes. And you know, last year there was a Butmir process when the European Union and the United States tried to work with the local party leaders to make um, constitutional changes, put the, the put the country on its own. And the, the talks were maybe at the wrong time, maybe not well prepared, but in a way they failed. And the European Union as well often didn't have, I would say, a, the really one 
one voice approach towards, um, for example, Bosnia and Herzegovina. And uh, here I thought that it would be necessary to find a more creative approach with more understanding. For example, now in, in the country there are elections this year in October, it's not the best time to search solutions because uh, more politicians are already using this pre-election time. But I think it's maybe an excellent time after the elections to start and revive again the process and involve as well um, civil society, NGO representatives, not be behind a closed door with um, only local leaders, um, but involve as well the society, how to make the country function. And for that I think you have to understand as well um, the history and most probably the mentality it is different how it works and therefore lots of people try to find formulas. I cannot give you a formula, but um, I think the, the important is that international community, which is still very much involved, um, finds the way forward it and helps um, to get Bosnia and Herzegovina as well and the other countries on its own feet. Um, Gabriel. I've been dealing a lot with this um, Slovene-Croatian issue and I have to say that um, w the agreement we have at the moment on the table between the two countries with the facilitation of European Commission, um, it's in my eyes a really good one because um, it really opens the way how to solve the border. It won't come in the next year or two years and while we speak today, the Constitutional Court in Slovenia is about to adopt the decision um, whether uh, the agreement is um, in the line with the Constitution. So this is supposed to happen today in Slovenia. As you know, Slovenia still so far hasn't ratified the agreement. But um, in any case, I believe that the, the agreement as a such reached last year between the Prime Minister Kosor from Croatia and Prime Minister Pahor from Slovenia. It's an excellent basis um, to solve the border issue. And the arbitrational tribunal will be only established at the end of Croatia is now continuing negotiations. So it's a separate process. 
um, Croatia now um, um, I think uh, closed 17 chapters out of 35 but um, the most difficult I think is still about to come and it will take a long time so I think just recently we had a discussion with the European Commission which really expressed um, that the ball is in Croatia side um, having said that there is one chapter which might prove to be very difficult is justice because Croatia um, is facing a lot of criticism concerning the cooperation with the ICTY. I don't know how much you are aware um, of the cooperation, why there is criticism towards Croatia. is because they, uh, the, the prosecutor's office in Hague is asking the um, artillery locks from, um, from the, the war events in Croatia, and Croatia is somehow um, either not finding them or basically slowing down the cooperation with the tribunal. So it might prove to be very difficult to close this chapter. And there are other things uh, Croatia still has to do a lot with, uh, with the administration reforms and uh, um, fight against corruption as well. So I believe, or at least expectations on both sides, are that Croatia will finish negotiations till the end of this year. If that is realistic, I difficult to say. But the dispute between Slovenia and Croatia um, is behind. I would say after the, the new prime minister in Croatia, um, Madame Kosor, took over the power. I think the new era started really in the relations between Croatia and Slovenia. And um, I don't think that Slovenia have whatsoever reason now to slow down the process of Croatia towards the European Union the opposite. So when Croatia might join the European Union, a rapporteur, for example, for Croatia in the European Parliament, Mr. Hannes Svoboda, recently expressed or said it might be 2012 or 2013. Some in Brussels are saying it might be together with Iceland, the package, the next enlargement package, Iceland and Croatia, because Iceland will go much faster. Um, it's difficult to talk in Brussels they often or we often or uh, the, the, the administration often refuse to talk about the dates it's always the results which will um, decide about the date so um, and I would as well like to add to be cautious I agree to be cautious but there are very certain rules which exist in European Union each country has to fulfill them before before becoming a member of the European Union so it's not that you give some present beforehand or it's a very clear way and the countries have to make the reforms and th therefore I believe it's very important to have this clear light at the end of the tunnel as well for the Western Balkan. Thank you. Dr. Greslav. When I, I was in Parliament when we voted for the last accession of Romania and Bulgaria. Of course there are criteria but, they, but nobody was very interested in if they are fulfilled or not. I have a lot of contacts to the European Commission and it was, what, it was quite, quite clear that the political pressure to have these accessions was so much strong that nobody asked if really we have the conditions fulfilled or not. I voted against Romania and Bulgaria. I also voted against the progress report on Croatia because it was inside that the, the negotiations should be closed till summer this year. 
What I fear is that all our holy criteria do not count at the very end, because then comes political pressure and also the Commission as an enlargement machine wants to go on. Then the Council says, yes, of course, you, you waited and now it's your turn. Um, that's what I fear and that's what we had up to now. Also, in 2004, we had the same thing that in some points there was a, the, the results were not so good, but um, they were sold as being very good. So I'm, I'm, I insist a lot on what we are doing here. If we continue not to look if these, if these uh, member states are able to apply with the European law, then we will have a European Union which is, which is only a customs union which is not, not anymore a political union. It's, for instance, rather difficult because we have now 27 commissioners, 27 member, members of the Court of Auditors. We have institutional problems from the, from the, the growth of, of, all this, uh, of all these persons and all this stuff behind. And uh, this will also affect the efficiency of the whole European Union. When we have the Balkan states, we have seven new commissioners. This is not my main argument, but it's also an argument. We have seven new members of the Court of Auditors. Um, for instance, Montenegro with 600,000 people, nobody talks about. What is, no, can we really continue as we did in the past? We will get new languages. We will get, this will double our prob the, the current problems we have also um, in, in the whole, in, in, in all the procedures we have. You know, I'm, I'm always surprised why, do, why don't we ask for more regional cooperation? Why don't we ask for improving the situation in, in, these, in the Balkan states now? Why the only hope is that the European Union may solve these problems? The European Union is unable to solve all these problems, believe me. And please tell me also from where the money comes. And please tell me what we're doing with Turkey. Thanks. A gentleman just here. I'm Chris Cannon, an accountant in the FCO, so I'm interested in the money, but I'll respond to that. Um, I want to make a comment, and I had a question. My comment is that I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting title, because to me, as a cynic, a fast track means sort of let them in without looking too closely at whether they met the key or whatever. And so I don't like that, because I think in the past, you know, Cyprus is unfinished business, and uh, Bulgaria has got problems with its judicial system and so forth. So I'm not very attracted to that. But the slow lane approach sounds like a bit, as with Turkey, sort of keep them out completely. You don't actually say no. In effect, you um, stop it. So my view is that you've got something, which is the key, which all these nations need to uh, sort of be able to meet. That is, a, that is a good test. And if you go with that, you avoid the political aspect, although I agree it's very hard to avoid politics, but you also avoid the, actually, we just don't want them in because we don't want them in. But my question is, first of all, really, is around the three key issues. How far are these countries along in meeting the key? And you know, how quickly could Bosnia and Herzegovina get there? But assuming they can meet them, you've got the two other big issues, which is money, who pays, and I'm not sure how expensive it is to bring in Western Balkan countries, and also the labour question. I mean, I thought it was very interesting when you said about the Polish coming in hadn't created a problem. It's a, it's a subject in its own right, but my, um, my brother lives in Lincolnshire, quite near Peterborough, 
and it's a very lively issue about uh, the number of poles that have, have been there. So I'm just interested in how how you see these how these countries are doing against the key and how the problems of both the money and uh, the movement of people will be addressed. Dr. Cressa, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah. <laughs> I'm also interested in this question. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, when um, um, I have from to 2011 will be an interesting date for Germany because then we have to open our labor markets for the new member states who came in 2004. We have now the crisis and we will see what happens. I don't think that we will have big moves but of course the crisis is everywhere in Europe and therefore let's wait and see. What we are fearing is a little bit that our social security system, which has a rather good uh, reputation all over the world, will be um, a little bit a target. We will see. Um, for the moment, nobody takes any measures or finds it necessary to take any measures. There have been uh, polls in, uh, in the new member states and these polls said before the crisis that nobody w was interested in uh, coming to Germany uh, after 2011. We will see what happens next year. Um, I am worried for the money. You know, who will pay for the future of the European Union? Seen the effects of the crisis, which is also a huge... Um, Haha, now I don't know the world. <laughs> the countries, huge credits, the German state took as credits the double as he had since the war. We have a, funda a fundamental change of our financial capacities and also of our financial possibilities. And therefore, the first test you will see is from now on because now the European Parliament prepares the next financial period from 2014 on. And those who wanted to avoid this question, they, they, they said, let's prolonge, let's prolonge the current financial framework till 2015, just to, to, to deviate this question. You will see it very soon, how much money will be available for the European Union and for enlargement. But tell me how much wants Great Britain to give. Everybody is called on giving money. And of course, this will also have effects on the member states, on the new member states, which are in the European Union. Then, of course, they will get less. And we have, um, we have scenarios where only from the new member states, only Romania and Bulgaria can still get money. Of course, the great loser, the great loser will be uh, Spain, because Spain now got, gets the most of the money. The great loser will be France. And I'm wondering if um, President Sarkozy, one year before his election, wants to face his population saying, um, now we do not have any more money because we have new member states and we, we have to be solidar we have to show solidarity. I wonder if this will work. And we have elections in 2014, and of course, Mrs. Merkel is not interested in saying uh, we pay now more than we did before, <coughs> because we are the one paying the, the biggest sum for the European Union, and I do not see how we can continue like that. And therefore, you know, let's let's discuss all these questions before, and not going to hope for uh, for other member states and for for future member states, and then not giving the money and disappointing everybody. Therefore, I try to be careful because I know all the problems behind. Mm -hmm.
Thank you. Smile. Mm, thank you. I would maybe start saying that costs for no enlargement will be much higher than costs for the enlargement as a such. Um, and you can clearly understand why, why I mean so. And uh, what I would say and add to that is that a key, as you said, it's a very good test for these countries. They have to adapt to a key. And I believe that um, it's not the parliament who decides, it maybe co-decides, but the European Commission is clearly putting always the, the roadmap how this country should proceed with the reforms in political and economic terms. So they cannot bypass the rules which exist in the European Union, how quickly they will become a member of the European Union. It's up of um, how quickly they will adapt the acquis. And if that is five, ten years, it's difficult to say. But in any case, to close the door, I think it's a wrong strategy and costs for closing the door will be much higher um, in terms of instability, economic cooperation, political stability. Um, and what I would like to say, transitional period, you mentioned the labor market. Um, countries in the last round of the biggest enlargement could use up to seven years transitional period to close the labor market and Germany used this right together with Austria and um, I doubt that next year Germany will face a bigger migrant flow. I would be very surprised if that would happen um, because those who wanted to find jobs they already most probably um, left their countries and um, concerning the money for the enlargement. Slovenia was first few years, for example, NATO receiver, but today is a NATO payer. So it always distributes when we make a new financial. It is true, Slovenia is today paying more than receiving out from the EU budget. And um, we always do the financial perspective for seven years or so, and it distributes among the countries, um, those who can be payer and receiver. So I don't think that now the, the biggest countries like Germany will have, of course will, they will have a much bigger load on its shoulders, but um, I think it's in the benefit of the European as well as in the benefit of, of course, the countries which will join the European Union. So, and the institutional problems you were saying, the European Union should first um, solve the institutional problems. I think in a great extent we managed to solve them with the Lisbon Treaty last year. Because um, so as long as we didn't have the Lisbon Treaty, we really had lots of institutional problems in the EU. But now having this treaty, I think it's really important because the institutions can function even being enlarged um, over 27 member states and I think this is very important. We have a tool that we can enlarge. So um, I believe it's possible that the Union enlarges how it will go on, whether that will be a European Union of two speeds or whether some countries will somehow concentrate on certain interest fields. That's the other question and most probably we could have another debate on that, where the European Union is going. But I think um, now clearly I see that in the last, again, year or two, um, everything, all the politics in European Union is basically um, developed by or rotating around France and Germany. As well, coming from small countries, sometimes it's um, not so easy to observe that basically all the EU politics is 
shaped around two big players in the European Union and that's maybe as well becoming quite a reality now. Dr. Cressa wanted to respond to a couple of points. Just, just, just to, I ch because I checked, the, I checked the figures, the Commission said for the statistics 2008 and there are no new figures available that 117 million euros went, as ne went net to, uh, to, um, to Slovenia, which is not much. I was surprised that it's, it's not much. It's true. We are proud of Slovenia because it's one of, it's one of our Balkan tigers. They are really good. I just, you know, I, I also had a lot of hope with the Lisbon Treaty. I also told my voters that with the Lisbon Treaty we will overcome institutional problems of the European Union. But now we have it and we see that's not true. Because in the Lisbon, in the Lisbon Treaty a lot of things have stayed very vague and we have to check and to clarify it the next years. I'm very sorry to see that because I also had the hope that we could go, could go on further. But... Um, I feel that um, this is not uh, possible for the moment, even with the external action service, the foreign policy, we will have, um, we will face big institutional problems and also a big institutional fight. Um, I just wanted to, to, to give some figures, 2006 to 2008, the 4.2 billion euros uh, have been granted to the Western, Western Balkan countries and 2.3 billion came from the European Commission, from the Commission's budget. And when I see how the money is used, I have some ideas. It could be better used. And this is also for me a point where I'm disappointed and what the Court of Auditors stated very clearly in, his, um, in its uh, special report on the Western Balkans, we could do better. But therefore, everybody is needed. Also, uh, your committee is needed. The foreign uh, politicians are needed, because I think the money we have now, we should we should make the best use to help these countries building up their their, their internal structures and their institutions that we can that that we can think about bringing them to the European Union. You know what 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 I see, and when I see the accession the accession procedures, the last ones, and also those of 2004. I'm not very confident because these famous Copenhagen criteria, at the very end, when we want the enlargement, we forget them. This is, for me, the problem. Therefore, I insist on that we do not forget anymore the Copenhagen criteria. If the key is really taken, and if it really works, then welcome. But please convince me that it really works. Thanks. Okay, we are rapidly running out of time. I've got a number of questions. I'm going to just take two. Could I ask you to be very, very quick in your question? Lady at the back. Mm -hmm. um, okay, I'd love to say that when you keep talking about cost, um, and it's all very expensive to be part of the UN to enlarge, but one thing is that EU is already involved in the Western Balkans and Bosnia. So it's already spending a lot of money, as you just said. Shouldn't it actually then not Sorry, unfortunately, I think, um, and I have gentlemen just here. I, well, I think there was. A, I think the point in, within the, the comment was quite clear as to whether the EU should engage and, and how it should deal with with Bosnia. My name is Andy Gartha. I work at the Foreign Office uh, on enlargement issues uh, in the EU. 
I think um, just two points. I think whether the, the region moves fast or slow to um, towards EU accession, I think will depend on very much the EU's approach to conditionality. You know, how much of the key or the political criteria do we insist on before they actually join? Because there is a different <coughs> opinion amongst member states and the Commission about how high the bar should be set before we actually close negotiations. And the second point is how do we deal with bilateral issues? Because all the prospective um, members of the region have outstanding bilateral issues which are mm. affecting their um, path towards accession. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Okay, about bilateral issues, you know that the European Union is not um, involving in bilateral issues, that's the, the, the politics, but in any case, if you just look to the Slovene-Croatian dispute, at some point it really turned that uh, when the, the, the bilateral issue became a European problem. It's very tricky when European Union starts really solving bilateral issues. I believe it's really bilateral issues should remain as a such. Um, but of course, if it becomes, for example, Croatia is the next country which has all the borders towards the, the republics of ex-Yugoslavia still open. So I'm afraid that when Croatia will become a member of European Union, the same will happen to solve the borders with the other parties um, facing the ex-Yugoslavia. But um, I would just say maybe for the end that um, if we talk about a fast track or a slow lane, um, neither fast nor slow, but let's be realistic and fair. And let's keep to a key, let's have the door open and not talk about who is now. Of course, we have to talk about the cost as well <coughs> of the enlargement. But as I said before, the cost of no enlargement will be much higher. Thank you. Thank you. You know, this is not an, an, an economic calculation. It's less or more expensive to have them in, with us or not with us. This is not a, this is not a question for the European Union, and this, this does not mean accession. Accession means applying European law, and this I don't see. I don't see the capability of these countries to do it, and I do not even see it in five years. And for Bosnia Herzegovina, five years is nothing. You, you, you know, this is not this is not the, the target of the European Union. The target of the European Union is having valuable member states. We are engaging in creating a state in Bosnia that functions. But 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 you know, the European Union is not the White Knight coming on his horse from Brussels to solve to solve a region. They have to solve themselves. You know, they have to build up a state. If not, it will not work. The European Union is not, the Commission is not able to run a state. We see what happens when the, U, when the United Nations run a state. We see it with Kosovo. The poverty is growing. You know, I'm sorry to say. But you, but you know, fortunately, fortunately, the Americans did very soon. They were full of hope. Yes. And they went against the people yes, the but the, yes, but then Germany built up. Yes, but Germany was very, very soon built up states. Very soon, we, know, we had the first elections in Germany in '45, and it worked. <coughs> and therefore, you know, you have to build up the state yourself. You can't use it.
Okay, unfortunately, I'm, I'm really sorry to say that we are actually out of time. We, we're rather pressed uh, as we have a class coming in here. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for coming this afternoon. When we sort of put this together, the idea was to actually have this discussion of balancing the regional stability versus the need to apply the acquis. And I think we chose two excellent speakers to deal with the topic today. So thank you very much to uh, Ms. Tanya Fyam and to Dr. Ingeborg Pressler. Thank you.